Our New Testament reading today, taken from 2 Timothy. We're continuing along in our study of 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy 2, today looking at 14 to 26. Paul says, Remind them of these things and charge them before God, not to quarrel about words, which does no good but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some, but God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. This is the word of the Lord. In turning to Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 7. Matthew 7, verses 12 to 29. Lord Jesus says, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down 
and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be likened to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat against that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, because he was teaching them as one who had authority, and not as their scribes. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, I don't think I've ever had people this close to me in teaching. And you'll have to, to bear with me today. This is a slightly different format. And as I find my way over the next several months, some of these times will be longer, some will be shorter. Today will be a little bit shorter. Um, and, uh, but I will get in the groove soon. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word today. <clears throat> We come before you as your faithful people who desire not only to hear the word from our Lord Jesus, but to do it and to obey it and to let the truth banish from our hearts and minds all error and all darkness and all the works of the evil one. We want, O oh God, to be aligned to your holiness and to your holy ways and to your truth and light. And so, God, arrest us now by your Holy Spirit. Grant us now, Lord, the unction of your spirit, both to teach and to learn. And uh, grant now, Lord God, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts, today may they be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our only rock and our only redeemer. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. So to Timothy, it's good if you have your Bibles with you. There are a couple of other Bibles here. If you don't have one, you're free, you're, you're helpful, you're uh, free to, um, to grab one. 2 Timothy 2, um, 14 to 26. And just a word about um, the rest of 2 Timothy. I meant to, I think, be through with 2 Timothy today. It's not surprising that I'm not. Um, and uh, there's at least three more, at least three more, if not four, uh, Sundays to look through 2 Timothy. And I, this is a really rich, rich book. Um, and I think that it... it um, it meets us where we're at in a very special way, uh, this epistle. And so I want to work through this slowly. We will go get into the book of Acts this summer. Uh, it's not going to be Lectio Continua. Uh, I will take some selected passages from Acts and we'll, we'll, um, 
we'll chew the cud together. Um, but probably for the rest of May, we'll be here listening to Paul uh, speak to Timothy and applying it to our, our own lives. Well, Paul begins today, as you look at uh, our passage, he, he begins with this idea of quarreling. And this is a repeated theme here. Uh, he, he talks about it in verse 16. So the, verse 14, he, he reminds Timothy to, or, or charges them, charges Timothy to charge the people. The word charge here is very, very strong. It's, it's a military term. He's telling the people of God, he's, he's asking Timothy to charge the people of God not to enter into this quarrelsomeness. And so we need to ask ourselves what Paul means by not quarreling about words. I think many, many of us on our initial uh, reading of that, uh, we raise our eyebrows. Really, Paul, we're not to have any arguments about words. It, you know, just looking at the history of the church, it doesn't seem to make sense. We, we read the, the Nicene Creed today of one nature with the Father, one being with the Father, homo usios. In 325, in the Council of Nicaea, the then known Christian world gathered together and they fought over the smallest letter in the Greek alphabet, the iota. The difference between homoi usion and homo usion is Christ of the same substance as the Father or is Christ of like substance with the Father? Is he similar to the Father? And in 325, all of Christendom hung upon an iota. They were arguing about words. And that's, of course, happened right through the history of the church. We've hammered out our doctrine. We've hammered out our belief in God by arguing about words. What does scripture mean? And so I think it's important that we ask what Paul means when he says um, you must not quarrel about words. And so to understand what he means in verse 14, we have to look at the repetition of this quarreling. So in verse 16, you'll notice he repeats it again. Here he calls it irreverent babble. In verse 23, he repeats it again. And here in verse 23... He calls it ignorant controversies um, that breed quarrels. And then again in verse 24, he, he, he again uh, enjoins Timothy not to be quarrelsome. The quarrelsomeness that Paul is dealing with is this irreverent babble and ignorant controversy. It is not an injunction against contending for the faith. Jude, right? The epistle to Jude. Contend for the faith once delivered for the saints. That's, our, that's being enjoined upon. It's not that. It is not an injunction against theological confrontation. Now we know that Paul was no powder puff, right? Paul, when he saw an issue that was, that was uh, denaturing the church... He went and he had that tete-a-tete when he needed to have it. Uh, he had it with Peter himself. I withstood him, Galatians and Galatians, I withstood him to the face because he was, um, he was leaving the gospel, um, Paul says. In 1 Timothy 6, when Paul's dealing with these people, 
We see them, we're going to talk about them in a moment. It's Hymenaeus and Philetus. Hymenaeus appears in 1 Timothy. Philetus, this is his first appearance. Hymenaeus seems to be a bedfellow with Alexander. And he's the guy that Paul talks about in Titus. Alexander, the coppersmith, those tradespeople, has, has done me much harm, he says. The Lord repay him. <laughs> That's a threat. Um, but not from Paul, but from the Lord. The Lord will repay him. Um, so um, when Paul deals with Hymenaeus in 1 Timothy, he says, whoever doesn't listen to sound words and the teaching that accords with godliness. This is one of Paul's oft-repeated phrases, especially in Titus, teaching that accords with godliness. What does that mean? It's the doctrine that makes your life holy, changes how you live. And godliness in turn, adorns the doctrine of God. It makes God's doctrine seem more glorious. A holy life makes the teaching seem more glorious. It adorns it like decorations on a tree. Whoever doesn't listen to sound words and the teaching that accords with godliness, Paul says he's puffed up, he's conceited, he understands nothing. Very strong words. It's confrontational words. Paul is no powder puff. So it's not about not confronting theological error. Not, quarrel, uh, not quarreling about words is not about not contending for the faith. We see that. What is it then? Well, in 1 Timothy 1.4, Paul identifies it with, number one, this irreverent babble, speculation. Number one, people who have lost their interest in the Bible and are more interested in speculating about things that the Bible says nothing about. Now, immediately, we can, we can call to our minds a vast sector of Christendom that is interested in speculative matters that the Bible says nothing about. When's the Lord going to return? All these kind of end-time matters, that, that kind of perverse interest in extra-biblical eschatological matters is speculative. Um, and there are many other things. But that's something that Paul says is this ignorant babble. It's speculation. Um, and secondly, Paul says, again, first, Timothy, first is 1 Timothy 1.4. And then in 1 Timothy 6.4, he again identifies this babble with an unhealthy craving for controversy. An unhealthy craving for uh, for um, battle. We've seen those people, right? They seem to get off. They, what they want is to get you into an argument. They feed off it. They get a perverse pleasure out of it. And the church or the person that just wants to kind of uh, get people fighting and get people arguing about things, he says that's this irreverent babble. This, these are the, the quarrelsome words. Um, and so a church and a person must be, must be um, pro-principle, pro pro-gospel, pro-doctrine, wanting to, to lovingly and adoringly talk about the things of God and should not be the person that just wants to get into fisticuffs with people always. Um, that's, a, that's a danger. And, you, well, you know, um, many churches fall into this. The, the old American fundamentalist um, stream of Christianity was known for this. Back in the 50s and the 60s, it lived to quarrel. 
And so the pulpit became kind of a bully box where it would be any number of, the sermon was, was about, um, it was contra rather than pro, contra Rome, contra Arminianism, contra, um, you know, um, ceremonialism or contra whatever it might be. And so the fabric of the message was um, identified by what it's against rather than by what it's for. And so this is very, very important for us as a church and as a people that what we speak, how we converse is, is about being for something rather than being against something. For Christ, pro-Christo, for the church, pro-ecclesia, for the Lord, for holiness, for godliness, for the kingdom, for Christ and his kingdom. And, and we ought to be known by these things. That's a true gospel believer. So um, that helps us to define uh, what this quarrelsomeness is about. Timothy, as you'll see, uh, just following this injunction in verse 15, must be the opposite. He must be the contrary, an approved worker who's not given to speculation, but who knows how to handle the right materials. This is what Paul calls in 1 Timothy 1, he calls it stewardship. You give yourself to stewardship, Timothy, rather than all this vain babbling. What's the stewardship? It's being completely given to the materials of the faith, the gospel, and, and, and knowing how to handle these things. And this idea of an approved worker, it's very interesting, you know, that Paul, Paul now, you know, for all of Paul's talk about faith and justification by faith, which is very, very important now, Paul defines Timothy as a worker, one who does, one who performs, one who acts. And this is exactly what Jesus says in our gospel reading today. If you are a gospel Christian, you are one who does. You are one who obeys. You are one who knows the content of the teaching, my teaching, Jesus says, and you put it into action. And this is what Paul says. And the idea here is of a, a skilled labor. Once in a while, we watch a show called, called Grand Designs. It's a really kind of, you know, the British understand calm TV, right? Kind of long lingering shots. And, you know, America's all frenetic and fast paced and, and it kind of gives itself to ADHD and all that. Um, this is a show about, uh, about building beautiful houses. And I was watching this um, erection of a, of a house with this black, the sable-like brick and watching how the, the master bricklayers put that string line against the bricks to make sure that everything was level, everything was straight, everything was plumb. Um, and the, the godly Christian and the godly minister is, is so very careful with the word of God. They give themselves to these things. And I want to encourage you that to be a godly believer, you must give yourself to the word of God and know how to handle it. It's not enough to have kind of periodic um, and occasional forays into the Bible. You must be an approved worker. You handle the word of God. You know how it works and how it functions. And, and you metaphorically take that line in your own life. And you make sure that your life is straight and plumb and square, and all of that with the Word of God. It's very, very important every day. Blessed is the man 
who doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. Just like God said to, to Joshua. Joshua, it's your turn now. Moses, my servant, is dead. You, therefore, Joshua, if you want to succeed, give yourself to my word. Meditate therein day and night. Turn neither to the right or to the left, but give yourself. Listen to my voice, Joshua. Part of my job, if not almost all of it, is to get the people of God into the word of God and the word of God into the people of God to encourage you. You must be an approved worker Know the content of the gospel. Know, know the materials um, well. Um, now, just uh, moving forward a little bit, with uh, Hymenaeus and Philetus, um, he, here we have now, again, the contrary. Paul kind of goes back and forth here. And here are people who are doing the opposite. They are, they are not handling the word of God well. Um, they are speculating, and they're putting forward a teaching that the resurrection has already happened. You know, when we read the Bible, sometimes we can just pass, we can pass through this. We just kind of, you read a text, and you kind of go through it, and part of what makes for good Bible reading is to let the trouble of the text trouble you. And to ask yourself, well, that's really kind of weird. How does a church... I mean, I, I want you to think about the proximity of this to the Lord. Paul was, Paul was Jesus' contemporary. He's roughly the same age. This is the morning of the church. And now people are beginning to teach that the resurrection has already happened. And it's gaining headway. This is what, this is gangrene, right? It's, it's spreading like a fire. The, the word gangrene is a, is a translation. It's not in the original Greek. But it's this idea of a disease that roars like a fire through a field. Like Samson with the foxes, right? And he sets them, he, he sets them and the field just goes up in, in flames. That's what bad doctrine does. Now you'll notice how careful Paul is being here about the presence of bad teaching in the church. He says it's not something to be trifled with. You need to nip it in the bud because it will spread like gangrene. Jesus said the very same thing, right? Beware of what? the leaven of the Pharisees. It will spread quickly. Um, and so um, the, this teaching is, is making headway. It's, it's, it's spreading like gangrene. And it, they're, they're telling people that the resurrection has already happened. That's kind of an odd thing to say, isn't it? I mean, who would believe that the resurrection had already happened? Because we're all here, Right? They're all, they're all kind of going to church on Sunday. Hey, the resurrection. Well, why, how can that be? We're still here. So it can't mean that, that the, kind of the, the, the church has kind of has, has ascended to glory or that the, 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 um, the, uh, the, the, the dead have been raised. It can't mean that because the dead haven't been raised. Loved ones are still dead. It's more subtle than that. There's two things that are happening in this teaching. Number one, it's an early form of Gnosticism. Number two, it's an early form of triumphalism. They're both kind of related, and they're both dangerous still today. The Gnostics spiritualized everything, and they wanted to deny the importance of the physical body. Where do they get this from? Well, they get it from the Greeks. 
the Greeks believed that the body was the prison house of the soul and that the goal of salvation is to escape the body, to get away from it. Well, that's precisely not Christian teaching. The goal of, of the resurrection is a glorified body. It's the resurrection of the body. And so the church, you can see, had begun to capitulate, or at least certain people in the church, had begun to capitulate to the Greek mind. Well, this resurrection stuff is really kind of distasteful to the Greeks. Remember when Paul at the Areopagus, when he's, he's, he's debating with the philosophers at Mars Hill, and they're listening to him quite happily until he mentions what? The resurrection. Then they laugh him, to, to, they scorn him. They laugh at him. They just say, pshaw, pshaw, Paul. And, um, um, or something, and I don't know the word for pshaw in Greek, but something <laughs> to that effect. Um, these teachers had begun to bend Christian doctrine to make it more palatable to the Greeks. Now, um, th there are all kinds of dangerous things that we don't have time to talk about with respect to Gnosticism, but Christian teaching, it highlights the importance of the body as much as it highlights the importance of the soul. Soul in Hebrew, the, the, the word for soul is, is really the, the totality of the human being. They didn't have a concept of kind of spirit and body, the spirit-body dichotomy. We are body and soul in a, in a profound oneness. And the soul is radically incomplete without the body. And so all of the language about glory in heaven, it's all remarkably kind of visceral and earthy. It's about feasting. It's about meals. It's about weddings. All this stuff that is remarkably earthly in, in, in context. And so um, there was kind of a, there was a, um, there was a bending of theology to please the Greeks by spiritualizing the resurrection. We're spiritually resurrected. It's a spiritual thing. It's really a misreading of Romans 6. When Paul says, we've died with Christ, we've been raised with Christ. It's all done, right? And so they dismiss now the important bodily aspect that's so important. But secondly, it's, a, it's an incipient triumphalism. Because they, they teach the resurrection has already happened, we have everything now that the resurrection promises. We have all the fullness now. We have all the power now. We have all the triumph now. Which, in a very radical way, denies the Christian theology of hope. We have some things now the kingdom is breaking through into our midst. We see signs, amazing signs. In the apostles' time, we saw people raised from the dead. We saw healings. But Paul also left people in Troas sick, right? Uh, was it Miletus or Trophimus? He, Trophimus? He left, at, at, uh, left sick in, My, in Miletus? Am I getting my words mixed up? He left him sick anyways. Paul himself suffered intolerably, it seems, from, from an eye disease, some form of glaucoma or something. So the whole now and not yet reality of the Christian uh, teaching was being dismissed by these teachers. They're saying it's all now because the resurrection has already happened. Just name it and claim it because it's yours to have. All power, all success. And so they, they, they really don't understand the, the fullness of Christian teaching that that though Christ is raised from the dead, though we're seated with him in heavenly places in Christ, yet we are killed all day long. 
and we suffer with the rest of the world, the slings and the arrows of outrageous fortune, even though God transforms those things. Now, you see what Paul is, is they're not denying Christ. Well, they are in a sense, but they're not denying, like here, the Trinity. They're not denying sonship. They're denying something important to Christian teaching that is pastorally really harmful, right? The person who's taught you can have it all now and doesn't get it. And I've been in those circles. You can have it all now. It's all yours to have. All health, all wealth, all whatever. And when they don't get it, it becomes very pastorally discouraging to them. Um, Paul, Paul kind of classifies this error under this, this, um, this uh, rubric of, I suppose, heresy. And so part of dealing with trouble in the church is not just letting these seemingly inconsequential things go their way. Forms of triumphalism, forms of Gnosticism, forms of denial. But Paul says you need to deal with this stuff. And in some cases, he says, have nothing to do with it whatsoever. Um, and so that's, that's uh, some of the error that's, that's uh, spreading around um, in, in, in Timothy's church. Um, now, Paul, does, Paul goes on from here now, and um, in verse 19, he begins now to introduce, in response to the bad teaching, he introduces this architectural language, this idea of, of the foundation. So there's lots of trouble in the church. There's trouble there. And Paul says, God's firm foundation stands. Now, he's talking now, ultimately, about the gospel and Christ, but also about the church. The foundation stands. And now the, 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 the architectural language of verse 19 is going to lead to the architectural language in verse 20. You see, he continues on with this idea of the foundation, now the great house. A house is built upon a foundation, and this stands. Well, what does it stand on? The seal of God's foundation. He knows who are his. The Lord knows who are his. And so in the church, there are those who are belong to the Lord, and there are those who don't belong to the Lord. And the Lord knows the difference, and he's able to deal with it, ultimately. And so, Timothy, you should not be discouraged by what you're seeing in all the trouble in the church, and trust the Lord to deal with it. Now, he carries this, this uh, metaphor on in verse 20, um, and forward, the church, Paul says, is filled with all types. This language of vessel here is very important, um, but it's filled with all types. You have strong faith, you have weak faith, you have noble workers, you have ignoble workers, you have honorable vessels, you have dishonorable vessels in God's house, on his foundation. Now, for those of you who, who are familiar with Paul's epistle to Romans, this, this uh, is redolent of Romans chapter 9. God the potter makes vessels for his own use and for his own purposes. He makes noble vessels and he makes ignoble vessels. And both of them serve God's sovereign purposes in the church. Like Paul says in 1 Corinthians, there must needs be heresy so that those who are approved among you, this language of approval, what he says to Timothy, those who are approved among you may shine forth. And so the ignoble vessels that God allows in the church allow the approved of God to shine 
and for God to be glorified. And so in God's church, you have Peter's. In God's church, you have Judas Iscariot's. Both are there by the Lord's sovereign knowing. And vis-a-vis Romans 9, both are there by the Lord's sovereign creation. He makes some for salvation. He makes some for destruction. Now, these are verses that you just need like Calvin to say, I don't comprehend it. I just say the Lord is far beyond me. These verses should humble us. They should not entitle us to take them like a club and badger people over the head um, and threaten people. They should lead us to awe. Um, But in this uh, chapter here in in 2 Timothy, the idea is that the Lord is in control. The church does consist of these various types of people. And the Lord is, is working out his sovereign purposes. Do not be discouraged, Timothy, when you don't walk into a church and have it filled with just all perfect people. I mean, various types. Various types in the useful vessels, but then you're also going to have these really questionable kinds of vessels that you're, what are they even doing in the church? The Lord is working all these things out, he says. Uh, and that's an encouragement to us. And it's also an encouragement for us to pursue being an honorable vessel. It's not only about being encouraged, but it's about you seek to be a gold vessel. Now, the idea here is usability. You be, you be usable. Christians are not those who perform things, right? Christians are those who are used. You are a vessel that can be used by God. And so we seek to live such a life so that we may be serviceable to the master. This should be a constant prayer. This is Hudson Taylor's, by the way, his great cry um, from a young man that he would be useful to the master. Lord, make me useful. You know, if the church was filled with more people like that, make me useful in this place, then the church would look like a very different institution. Well, how do you become useful? You must cleanse yourself, verse 21, from what is dishonorable. Well, two things here that are dishonorable. What's the dishonorable vessel here in in this passage? The dishonorable vessel is Hymenaeus and Philetus. The dishonorable are the heretics. Keep yourself from these bad teachers. Keep yourselves from their conversations. Keep yourselves from their way of life. Separate yourself from the dishonorable vessels. Don't participate in that stuff. Number one, stay away from the heretics. Um, number two, and this is now in verse uh, 22, you must flee base passions. The dishonorable also has to do with these base, ignoble passions. Flee youthful passions. Now, there's a reference here, right? There's a, there's a, Paul is an Old Testament scholar. And when he says flee youthful passions... He's thinking of a young man that had to flee temptation. Lost his robe in the process of it. The idea here is of Joseph. Joseph running away. Now, what many people don't get about Joseph is that the only reason he was able to escape a very real temptation, I'm sure that Potiphar's wife was no no second-rate individual. Joseph was severely tempted, 
And the only reason he could run away was because of his response and his awareness of God. How can I do this wicked thing in the eyes of God? Joseph is so aware of the Lord. He lives with this awareness. And when sin presents himself, his thought is, I cannot grieve God in this way. And brothers and sisters, if you want to be serviceable to the Lord and useful to the Lord, you must stay away from the heretics and you must run from base and ignoble passions. Stay away from them. There's so much in this world that directly cuts against the grain of the Christian way, which Jesus said to us today from his own word is narrow. It's hard, and very few people find it. The world is filled with stuff that does not um, echo with these things as it ought to do, and we must simply run away from it, have nothing to do with Don't participate in that stuff. And brothers and sisters, err on the side of caution. Listen to your voice. Listen to conscience. Listen to God's voice. And if we... Stay away from bad teaching. If we flee from youthful passions, then the Lord says that we will become a vessel that he can use. And if you want to have a soft pillow on which to lay your head at the end of your life, make your life a useful one so that you can look back and say, by God's grace, I lived life serviceable to the Lord. He used me. Even though, you know, we, we're, none of us are going to be perfect, faithfulness in service doesn't mean perfection in service, right? The Lord's going to say to us, you know, when you've done everything you're supposed to do, you say, we are unworthy servants. We just did what you asked. But may we live the kind of serviceable, useful life so that the Lord will say to us, well done, my good and faithful servant. That's how to lay your head down softly on your deathbed. Rather than a hard, stony pillow with a life of regret. Because we were not useful to the Lord. And in God's house, brothers and sisters, there are gold vessels. Then there are silver vessels. Then there are wood vessels. George Swinnick, the Puritan, said, he said, uh, it used to be that we had, we had wooden vessels and golden priests. Now we have golden vessels and wooden priests. There are these levels of usefulness in God's house. And you may be any one of those things. If you want to be wooden, the Lord will let you be wooden. If you want to be clay, the Lord will let you be clay. But if you say to the Lord, I want to be a golden vessel for your presence to pour through, to overflow into the lives of others, then God, by his grace, will give you that desire. He withholds no good thing from those who ask him. So every day our prayer ought to be, Oh God, make me a golden vessel for your service. And I will stay clear of the heretics, and I will give myself to a godly, to a godly life, pursuing faith, 
This is pursuing righteousness in verse 22. Pursuing faith. Pursuing love. Pursuing peace. With all those who what? Call upon the Lord. Isn't it interesting that Paul defines the Christian by what? The Christian is one who calls on the name of the Lord. The Christian is one who prays. There's a direct line here to the godly line of Seth in Genesis 4. To Seth was born Enosh, and at that time, the godly line begins. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. A Christian is one who prays, who seeks God. So brothers and sisters, may all of us today take these words to heart and may this be our prayer every day, not only to be a golden vessel, but Lord, help me to pursue righteousness today. Help me to pursue faith, to pursue love, to pursue peace, to, uh, peace as I call upon the name of Jesus Christ. And Jesus is the only one who can make this happen for you today. And he gives himself to us freely. And so we're going to come to the table today with all of our sin and all of our imperfection and all of our brokenness and all of our incompleteness. And we're going to ask the Lord to take our emptiness and give us his fullness. To take our darkness and to give us his light. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.